0: And I think the reason it is, is because Buddy the Elf, a lovable, charming character, is out to save Christmas. Christmas is in danger of being lost. And Buddy, with his love of Santa and all, thing, all things Santa and the North Pole and, and, and his Christmas, he's just the guy to save it. I mean, he is the man to save Christmas. But here's the question. Is the Christmas that Buddy is saving worth saving? In my perspective, I mean, I've I've gotten caught up in the in in the trappings and the traditions that surround a, a Christmas in, in our culture. I I've been caught up in the buying and the and the and the busyness and and the just the noise and distraction. I I've been caught up in all of that. And in, the, in recent years, I've recognized that maybe that Christmas isn't worth saving. You see, I don't, I don't want you to take me wrong. I, I, I don't want you to think that I'm up here trying to teach you that as we redeem Christmas that we have to be so different from the world that we give up all the traditions that we tend to enjoy. I mean, honestly, by themselves, the things that we do at Christmas really are probably Harmless, maybe even good things. I mean, giving gifts and demonstrating generosity, that's really a good thing. I mean, spending time with family and sitting down to a meal and enjoying that special time together, that, that's really a good thing. And the general attitude of, let's be nice to one another. I don't know that it really works, but at least there's this attitude around the season, around the holiday that, hey, we're, we're going to strive to be nicer. To one another. I mean, I, and I say it, I don't, I don't know if it works because really, underneath all of these traditions, and even though by themselves they're, they're probably good things, there thrives the heart of a depraved person, depraved people. And I mean, maybe you've heard about this on Black Friday. Did you hear about the lady who's wanted an Xbox so bad that she began pepper spraying people in Walmart so that she got hers? There was a, and you can see it, I mean, if you read about it, it doesn't even do it justice. These people, Walmart sets out a pallet of Xbox 360s that they're going to sell for 50% off. I mean, if it was a PlayStation, maybe I I get it. But, you know, I mean, an Xbox, I don't understand why there was so much hype. (laughs) I I don't get why there was so much hype. but, But the reality was these people wanted so badly to have this Xbox. I mean, there was a... I don't know how many people were there surrounding this pallet. They start to unwrap it. People start pushing, throwing elbows, and and reaching in to grab their Xbox, and it is a mess. You can look it up on YouTube and watch it. I wanted to show Buddy the Elf, so I didn't bring that video else I I would have shown it to you. But go home, look it up. Don't do it on your iPhones while I'm preaching. Um, But anyway, it's, it's a mess. And in the middle of that, there's one woman that so desperately wants her Xbox that she pulls out her pepper spray and begins to spray people. Am I making you nervous? Uh-oh. Okay. No, that's all right. I'm going to keep going. I'll ignore that. Um, so she starts spraying people, and people. there's like 20 or 30 people that end up injured because of this. It's it's crazy. So I don't know that we're really striving to be nicer to one another in this time, but at least we say it. There's another story of a guy who walked out of a Walmart. He had just gotten his Black Friday deals, was loving whatever he got. Walks out, two guys wanted it more than them, more than him, and they shot him and stole his stuff and went off. And he ends up in the hospital, critically wounded. I'm just going to say, I'm not saying we throw that stuff away. But what I think is, what I think that we can see, and I know these things are extreme. I know that they are extreme. I know that they're not the typical way that the typical person, the average person, is not running out there and beating people up for an Xbox 360, I get it. I know that that's not typical. But I know that stuff like that happens every year. And what I think that's indicative of is I think that what we can see in that happening every year is that these traditions that we hold to, these traditions that we so look forward to and anticipate this time of year, this season that we so long for and all of the trappings that go with it. I think we can see clearly because of things like this and, and even the way we get caught up in it, that these traditions that are distracting, that, that, that these traditions are distracting us. They are distracting us. From our problems momentarily. But only momentarily. Because the reality is. Is that the season is going to end. December 25th is going to come and go. And be gone for another year. January 1st is going to roll around. And we're going to blow by Christmas. In fact this year we didn't even stop really. In, in our culture. And think about Thanksgiving. The day after Halloween. I was receiving Christmas ads. Because stores want so desperately for you to spend Your money, who cares about Thanksgiving, we need you to enjoy Christmas. But the season's gonna end. And what happens January 2nd when it's done and gone? All of those problems that we have been distracted from momentarily come rolling back, hit us like a ton of bricks. Vacations are over, holiday days off are done, and it's back to the grind. You see, these these distractions, they're they're distracting us momentarily, and they are offering no real resolution. They're they're offering no real hope of real change or anything lasting. And so, at least for me, at least for me, I'm not saying that I'm not going to give gifts. But, but, but I'm not giving gifts like I've done in the past. I'm not saying that I'm not going to go to a family meal and sit with my family and enjoy that time. I'm not going to say that, that I'm not going to sit around a Christmas tree and, and enjoy the, the traditions that we've come to enjoy, that, that we've come to love and come to anticipate. I'm, I'm not telling you I'm going to turn any gifts away. I'll take them. I'm happy to have them. I want them but what i'm telling you is that i'm striving and i'm asking you to strive with me to redeem out of all the noise out of the cacophony of distractions that surround our holiday to redeem the central and first theme of christmas the birth of our son or, or, the, or the birth of god's son the lord jesus christ it's in Him that we're going to find the greatest hope. It's in Him that we're going to find the resolution that matters on January 2nd. It's really in Him that in June, when we're not even thinking about Christmas, that life is going to be still important and and we're still going to make it. We're going to be able to get by. We're going to be able to be okay. As we do this, we're going to start this week with the promise the promise. Now, as I'm saying the promise, I hope if you've been here, you know, we've been talking about the promise of God for a couple of weeks already. If you've been here through that, I hope your mind is automatically going to Abraham, to Paul in Galatians, where he's talking about the promise that God made to Abraham. That's not the promise we're going to make today, but I hope your mind goes there because that means it's sinking in. That means that wait. I think of something when I think of the promise of God. Hey, that's a great promise to think of. But the truth is, is that's not the only promise God ever made. The truth is, is that the God that we know, the God that we trust and follow, he's a promise-making God. In the Advent guides, now I got the printouts to you a week late, so really this is last week's printout, or last week's um, devotion. But in here it says this. God makes promises to His people throughout the Old Testament. A rainbow appears as a promise that the flood was a one-time deal. God promises deliverance and spares an entire generation of Israel during Passover and with it preserves the joy of each father in holding his firstborn son. David sleeps on cave floors hunted by Saul and God delivers him. The Lord, listen to this, the Lord is a promise making, and a promise keeping God. That's important. It's absolutely important that you see both of those. He's a promise making and promise keeping God. It doesn't matter how many promises you make. If you don't stay true to your word, if you don't keep your promises, the promises, is, 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 is word jack. It's, it's meaningless. But he is a promise making and a promise keeping God. As David's that He promised. He made David a promise. The promise that He made to David is the one we're going to be discussing today, looking at in the Scripture today. If you've got a Bible, you're welcome to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's in the Old Testament. If you don't, the verses will be on the screen. But this promise that He made, it's not, it's not something so different from the promise of Abraham in that God was doing a separate work. But just as the promise that God made to Abraham is a part of the history of redemption, uh, it's a part of the work that God is doing to bring a people of His own out of the world. So is this promise that He made to David. 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'm going to start reading verse 12. We'll go through verse 16. He says this, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. This is God speaking to David and he's speaking through a prophet named Nathan. David had gotten together with Nathan and he had this dream. He's like, Hey man, I want to build God a house. Things were going pretty good for David. He had been established as king. I mean, he had had some trouble with Saul, you know, and Saul had been defeated. God had, in fact, by by this time, Saul's dead and 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 gone. He's just a memory. And all the trouble that David had to sleep in the caves and and run and hide, all of that's all, all of this over. David's now set up in a palace. He's enjoying life. He's enjoying peace. And he's sitting and thinking you know and it's probably like most of us do when we get bored we got nothing to do but thinking let's let's figure out what to do next so he starts thinking what am i going to do he gets this idea he's going to build a temple he's going to build a house for god and he goes to nathan this prophet that he's that he's worked with and that he knows he goes to nathan and he says nathan i want to build god a house and nathan said hey Do what's in your heart to do. You go do it. He doesn't inquire of the Lord, doesn't think about it, doesn't pray about it, just tells David, go do it. Enjoy, have a good time, knock it out. That night, Nathan is sitting, and God comes to him and speaks, and he says, oh, man, you shouldn't have told David to do that. In fact, you need to go back and tell him not to do that. And so then he begins to speak and tell Nathan and and, and demonstrate to Nathan the words that he was going to speak to David, and these are the words that he was speaking to David. David. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, so when you're dead and gone, that's what that means if you didn't get it, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Somebody from your line, from your lineage is going to be king after you and I'm going to establish his kingdom. Listen to this. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom And here's the shocking part, forever. That's a long time. I mean, most people don't live that long. If we're really healthy, we might get 80, 90 years. Some people, I had an aunt that lived like 108 or something like that. But that's not normal. I mean, I don't know what these people were thinking they would live to, but forever wasn't it. I'm going to establish His throne forever. I will be to him, verse 14, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before from before you. If you remember Saul, Saul was, he he was the people's choice and God let him have their king but he wasn't necessarily faithful to God. So Paul, God takes His love from him, puts Paul away, makes David the king. He says, And your house, verse 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That's a pretty big promise. David, you know, I, I I don't know what David's thought was in that moment. I don't know if he's thinking, gen- actually, I, I do know that he's thinking beyond that because we'll see it here in just a little bit. But I, but, but I don't know how shocked David was. I, I don't know all of the depth of thought that was going on inside of him. But I think it was clear to him that at some level he understood that that one of his sons was going to be the king. When this promise is made, he doesn't really know who it is, but but through the lens of history, we can we can study and we can see in the Bible that it was Solomon and Solomon followed after him and Solomon fulfilled part of this promise. You see, this is the way that prophecies work in the Old Testament. A prophecy in the Old Testament oftentimes didn't just speak of some far-out future event that would occur in some some time that only God knew. They all did and all will. But a lot of times, a, a prophecy that was made by a prophet had a had a physical representation occur in the moment or in that time. And so that's what begins to happen. But Solomon follows David, and he fulfills some of this prophecy. I mean, Solomon, Solomon did build God a temple. It was fabulous. It was glorious. It was amazing. Solomon got to be a part of that work. Solomon sinned in his old age, Solomon sinned, and he was disciplined by God. But it's obvious when you begin to look at the depth of the passage, when you begin to look at all that the passage is saying, that it can't simply be pointing to Solomon. Because Solomon is going to reign like any other king. He's going to be appointed at some point in history and he is going to die at some point in history and someone is going to take the throne from him. And you could say, and you could, you, you could say, well, God's just making metaphorical language and really that it's just this line of kings that he's talking about. But if you follow the history of Israel, that doesn't work either. Because there comes a point when a king is not even sitting on the throne of Israel. You see, we recognize, sure, we recognize that that there are parts of this prophecy that appeared to be fulfilled by Solomon. But God wasn't just working to provide for the next couple of generations. He he wasn't just making this promise, He wasn't just making this claim, he, He wasn't just saying this astounding thing to take care of just one or two generations. He's doing a work that he'd been at since the fall since before the foundations of the world and that was really going to be fulfilled years later John Piper when he speaks of God's covenants then this is a covenant that God is entering into anytime God makes a promise to someone and he says this is what I'm going to do it's a covenant he's making with someone because God can't lie and so if God says, I'm going to do this, and it's not a real covenant, it's not a real, a, a real agreement with, from him to the person that he's promising to, if it's not real, then he's not the right God to follow. Because if he lied once, he'll lie again. If he's not going to do what he said he's going to do once, then how do we know he'll ever do what he said he's going to do? But, but John Piper, as he talks about this, he talks about these covenants, as job descriptions of God. When God makes a promise, He is telling us what He is going to do. He's telling us. He is telling us what, what every bit of His ever, or, or, or eternal power, His, every bit of, of His power, His, His, I mean, He's omnipowerful. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm powerful I mean, He is, He has all power. He is telling us what all of that power is going to be used to do. He's telling us what all of His knowledge, and He knows everything. He's telling us what all of that knowledge is meant for and moving towards. When God tells us and and gives us a promise, He's telling us what all of His wisdom is, is about doing. He's telling us what He's going to do with all of His vast resources. And you know, that's it's really why we can trust this promise. It's really why this promise, and the promises like it, the promises to Abraham, the promises to, the, to, to others through the Old Testament, it's why we can trust these promises. Because God, in His infinite power, His infinite knowledge, and His infinite wisdom, and His infinite resources, He owns everything. And if He doesn't have something now that He wants, He can speak it into existence just like that. I mean, if, if I want a tool, I might, I gotta figure out how to buy it or make it. God says it's there and it's there. These infinite resources are about making these promises come true. Man, that, that's a promise. That is a promise. And God is promising David in this moment, all of my vast resources, everything that I have at my disposal is going to ensure that your throne lasts forever mean, grasp that in your mind what does forever look like what is what is forever i mean how do you think about forever we're so tied to time and i i mean i gotta think i've gotta be done in 30 minutes thereabouts i i mean time we're bound to it we're we're creatures that that depend on it and god's saying forever Without end. That's big. But because it's God that's promising it, I think we can count on it. I I think that we can trust that as God decreed that by His power and by His will, because it was His decision, I think that we can believe and trust that it will be fulfilled. You see, and this is, this is really the promise that the Jews were looking forward to. In that season when Jesus was born, and really for generations ahead, I, here's, here's the interesting thing. I was thinking about that the, the, about this this week. You know, we anticipate and look forward to Christmas, but we're not the only people that have done that. People have been looking forward to and anticipating Christmas Christmas, the real Christmas, the the celebration of the birth of the Son of God. People have been looking forward to that since promises like this were made. We're not the first ones to celebrate Christmas. Now, these people back in the day, they didn't know what to call it. They didn't have any idea that one day we would call it Christmas. They had no idea that it was going to be put on December 25th and, and that there was going to be shopping schedules placed around it. They had no idea that, a con- that, that an entire economy of a nation would be dependent on what happens between Thanksgiving and Christmas. They, they had no idea, but they celebrated the promises and they anticipated them being fulfilled. That's what the Jews were looking forward to. And when they heard that David's throne would be established forever, they were looking for a king to be born. That's what they wanted. They were looking for for a child that would raise up and grow into a king and who would rule and lead them. they were watching, waiting, anticipating God's promise to be fulfilled. And see, the the truth is, is that the promise was fulfilled. And it's being fulfilled. But unfortunately, the Jews missed it. Many of them did. Because as they thought about what a king looked like, as they thought about what they expected their king to be, they looked for Saul. When they should have been looking for a David. Saul was put away. David's throne would be established forever. And we're fortunate because we sit in a place in history that looks back in history and we get to see how the promise was fulfilled. If Keep your finger in 2 Samuel, if you're, if you're flipping through your Bible with me, keep your finger there because we are going to come back to it. But turn over with me to Luke chapter 1. We're going to read verses 26 through 33, and we will see the promise fulfilled. <clears throat> it says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of, Na- of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favor one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and she tried and tried to discern forever and of his kingdom there will be no end now i mean that's a pretty intense deal if you begin if you stop and think about it. i mean gabriel pretty big in the whole angelic realm pretty famous as angels go he shows up in this little city it, basically in, in the armpit of the world at the time. I mean, they were not known for high society. Nazareth wasn't known for pumping out the movie stars and the, and the people you wanted to be like. They're just a small, small hick town. Gabriel shows up and he's, he appears to this woman, Mary, and, and Mary's troubled. She's, she's distraught. I mean, he begins to speak and she gets troubled. and He's, he's like, hey, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I, I mean, it's a common thing. It's normal to get scared when an angel shows up. So be okay with that. I mean, you can just decide today. If an angel appears to you, it's all right to wet yourself. It's okay. I, I mean, I think I would. It's okay. That's normal. That's what happens. It, it, you read the Scripture and you'll see it. And she's troubled She's distraught. She she doesn't know what the words he's saying mean to her. What does it mean? Oh, favored one, what does that mean? Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. That word favor means grace. Basically, what this angel's telling Mary is God has looked at you and done for you a good that you would never ever deserve he has shown you unmerited goodness he has called you his own and he is going to use you for his purpose it's verses just like these uh, and 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 i understand that that um i'm not about defaming people or defaming traditions but it's things like this that make me disagree with the Catholic tradition as they talk about Mary in this immaculate conception in that she never had sin or that she was, that she was preserved through some line of sinless people. She experienced the grace of God just like everyone else that has ever experienced the grace of God. He used her for an amazing and special purpose. And so maybe that grace was, 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 was a measure more. I don't know. I, I, Honestly, if I get any grace from God, I'm thankful for whatever level it comes to me at. But she is a favored one who has received God's grace, who God has looked at. And by by no means of her own or no understanding of her own, she didn't even get it as he spoke to her, As, as Gabriel announced it. She didn't even understand. She knew who God was. She was raised as a Jew. She she understood what this life was about. She she knew that she wanted to know God and experience His grace. But I can tell you she was shocked when she heard it said out loud by one of God's own messengers. Favored one. You are being given God's grace. And then He tells her how. You. You. Though you're a virgin, you've never been with a man. You're going to have a baby. I mean, if the grace of God being poured out on you wasn't enough to knock you over, I think this might do it. I know I'd be shocked if somebody showed up to me and told me, you're going to have a baby. I'd be shocked. You guys would be too, would you? But the truth is, the, the, the thing is, is that God was about to work this amazing miracle. He was about to do this amazing thing, and, and, and it's beautiful. I mean, it, it is beautiful that he's going to do something that defies explanation and that a woman that has never been with a man is about to be made pregnant But even bigger than that, this child is not just going to be another kid that runs around and screams his head off and and drives his parents crazy and requires all of their attention. He is going to be the son of the Most High. This is going to be the son of God. And then Gabriel without even taking a breath, I think, without even slowing down, he spits out this phrase that tells them in this moment, through this baby, the promise that God made to David is going to be fulfilled in him. His throne will be established forever. His kingdom will have no end. Does that sound familiar? I mean, I mean, we've just read it. These people were living it. This is what they were being taught and ingrained with from the very beginning, from, from a young age. They were sitting and listening to the law and listening to the promises that God had made to the Israelites. This is what God was doing. This is how He was fulfilling His promises. was going to send his son to earth and that little boy would be born just like every other baby with a miraculous beginning a miraculous conception that would that would just set the stage for a miraculous life and i flip back to verse or chapter second or samuel chapter 7 because there's a couple of things I want to point out just so that there's no doubt that in this, that Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy. If you look in verse 27 of Second Samuel chapter 7, he says this. Well, let me find it. Here we go. I said 27. I should have said... S- not. hold on. <laughs> That's the problem. Should be like verse 13. He says, He shall build a house for my name. Now, here's how that word house is being used. In the beginning, when David is talking to Nathan about building a house for God, he's talking about a building. And when God says to Nathan, Nathan, I don't want him to build me a house, he's talking about a building. I didn't share this with you, but in verse 11, God changes the way He begins to use that word, and He says, in verse eleven, it says, "Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house." David already had a palace; it was made of cedar. Maybe it's not much by today's standards. I don't know what it really looked like. I can't imagine a cedar palace. I always picture stone and you know the towers on the corners and stuff like that. That's that's not really, I think, what his palace was like. It was made of cedar. But David had that. He was settled. Things were good. And so now God's saying, I'm going to build you a house. You don't need to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And and what we begin to see, especially from the context that follows right after that, is God is not talking about a building anymore. He's talking about a people. A kingdom, maybe a, a, a dynasty. I mean, I mean he, He's, he's ref- using this, this phraseology to, to, to tell David that he is going to do something big and, and redeem or, or build this people out of him, through him, because of him, and through the one that's going to sit on the throne forever. You see, you you can really see it in these in these verses. He says, "I'm going to build you a house." Not 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 talking about simply a building. He says, I, "He shall build a house for my name." Not not talking about a building. He's talking about a people. The throne of his kingdom will be established forever. The whole context of verse thirteen helps us see that this is so much more than just one building. But it's a big dynasty. It's a, it's a, it's a it's a kingdom, and it will last forever. And then you go into verse 14. Oh, just by the way, just in case you don't know, Jesus did that. You get it? Jesus did that. And it's really happening even as we speak. It's being done. He came, and through him, this kingdom is being built. He brought the kingdom with him. Excuse me. And he is building a house for God. It just dawned on me, I'm just thinking. In First Peter, it talks about that we are being put together as a spiritual house. And the idea, the theme of that, that runs all the way through Scripture. That's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus is doing. There, verse 14, it says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Who did Gabriel say that Jesus was going to be? the Son of the Most High. How often in the New Testament, how many times in the New Testament can you think of that God spoke clearly from heaven? It's like the, it's like the, the, the volume was turned up and God spoke and it was out loud and people heard it and He said, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. That's Jesus and then also in verse 13 or 14 I'm sorry in verse 14 he says I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son when he commits iniquity I will discipline him with the rod of men with stripes of the sons of men but Jesus didn't commit any sin but he who knew no sin became sin you know and in that moment when God from eternity past looks and, and, or, 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 I'm sorry, from, from the beginning of the world, God looks in that moment when his son is hanging on that cross and as he is being moved towards that cross, and he looks into the future and he takes all the sins of the future and all of the sins of the past and he puts them on his son. I, I don't, I don't know how that works in God's economy. I don't, I don't get how he can do that. But Jesus, even though He never sinned Himself, was punished for sin. He was beaten at the hands of men. And it's as the prophet Isaiah said, it's by His stripes that we are healed. Make no mistake. This prophecy from 2 Samuel, from thousands of years, from from centuries before Jesus was ever born, God was saying, he's coming, he's on his way. Watch and wait. And in this season that we are now celebrating and looking forward to and and, and wanting to enjoy, this is the central theme that we are striving to redeem and call people to remember. Jesus fulfills the promises of God. I don't care how you feel about all the other junk Or all the other stuff Even the good stuff That comes in these Christian or Christmas traditions This birth Is worth celebrating It's worth remembering Because in it God's promise was fulfilled It's easy to say Well wait a minute Wait a minute I don't see a throne. I I don't think that Jesus did it all. I don't think that it's really happening. I, I, I I think God failed. The dude died. He was crucified. Don't you remember the story? Yeah, I do. I absolutely do. But I think it would be foolish to think that just because God didn't do something then He's done now. Just because God didn't get it done when we thought He should have got it done or when we would have liked to see Him get it done doesn't mean He's done. Doesn't mean it's finished. Doesn't mean it's over. What it means is we should still be watching and waiting. You see, that's what Advent is really all about. We sit in a a unique place in history. We sit in a place in history that looks back At the birth of Jesus Christ, we we, we look back and, and we celebrate His coming. We celebrate His life. We celebrate His death and His resurrection. And we look forward to the moment that when the time is right, that the skies will open and our King will return. God is playing the long game. This isn't just about one or two generations It's about a people that he has always known that he is redeeming to himself. And when the time is right, have no doubt that Jesus is coming back. Revelation. Stay in 2 Samuel. Let me just read these to you. Revelation gives us a picture of what's going to happen in that time. And and there's so many things that, that, that people discuss and debate but I think that there's some things that we can see that are clear, that, that, man, they make me yearn for them to occur. They make me long for them. Revelation 19, 11 through 16 says this, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. I think it's clear, this is Jesus. He's clothed in a war robe that is dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. as he hung from that cross. And we may not have understood what was happening in the moment that he ascended from the mountain to the right hand of God, but I can tell you that the Scripture tells us clearly that when he comes back, it will not be mistaken. Our King will have arrived. He will be here. King of kings and Lord of lords, not open for debate. No room to dispute it. No reason to question it. And whether you look back and think of that fondly or not, whether you believe Him to be the Son of the Most High or not, every knee in heaven and on earth will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Man, I want that to happen because today it's hard to wait. And I'm impatient but I'm waiting expectantly for it to occur. Then Revelation, I mean, that's not even the only one. Revelation 21.3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne. I mean, it's all imagery of a kingdom being put in place. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. To see God, to be in His presence and the, and the shades of gray to be removed and to be able to see clearly what I have trusted in for so long, isn't that something you long for? Doesn't it stir within you to be in the presence of your Creator, the God who loved you enough to look at you in spite of your filth and your depravity and say, you are mine, I love you. That's huge. huge. His dwelling place will be with us. But don't miss it. It's not a democracy. He's going to have a throne. He's going to be king. A king that I think we will love submitting to. Verse 5 of that same chapter, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. We know, our minds tell us we can see it, we can experience it. We know that this world is fading and crumbling and rocked with trouble. He's making it new. A place where tears will not be experienced, where pain will not be felt. Death will be no more. All things new. Revelation 22 1 through 5, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. I, mean, I, I don't know what imagery that, that's, that, that strikes in your mind. The river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. That's Jesus. Through the middle of the street of the city, Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face I mean, imagine. We're we're, we're gonna die and we're gonna decay and we're gonna be like Job. We have the same hope that in the day that this occurs, that we will stand in our flesh, and with our own eyes, we will know that our Redeemer lives. And we will see him with our own eyes and see his face and be in his presence. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you that in this Christmas season, I want you to redeem it. I want you to come alongside with me and not simply come to a place where you where you just discard the old traditions. I'm not asking you to do that. I'm just asking you to redeem out of the center of them out of the noise of all that happens and all that's around and bring front and center this anticipation and this waiting. This promise of God has been made and it has been and is being fulfilled. And we have so much to look forward to because of it. I mean, that's really the question of the day. That's that's the question. What do I do with the promise? If, If the promise is true, if the promise is right, what do I do? Real quickly, back in 2 Samuel, I want to use David as an example. 2 Samuel 7, David begins to answer. We're not going to read his whole answer, but he begins to answer. I just want you to hear this. He says in verse 18, Then King David went in. This is after David is told by Nathan what God is about doing. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? What is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord god and what more can david say to you for you know your servant O lord god i mean he is moved he's he's struck he's he's amazed because of your promise and according to your own heart you have brought all this greatness to make your servant know it what do we do in light of the promise what does the promise mean to, does it have anything for me does it does it mean anything for us yeah i think i think we get a couple of options out of this i mean we can either stand with buddy the elf and we can get just fired up about santa claus showing up in town we can get fired up about all that goes on in this season You know, the interesting thing is is that Buddy, the next day when Santa showed up, found out that Santa was a fraud. And the truth is, that's what we're always going to find out. It's all fraud. It's all failing. It offers no hope. Those promises can't be kept. Because come January 2nd, when the season is over and when the holidays have ended, life goes on. Or we can respond like David. And we can accept this humbly. And did you hear, David? Who am I? Who am I? Who is my house? Who is my lineage? Who are the people that are coming from me? That you would even consider this. Are we? We don't deserve it. We can't stand before God with anything but our dirt and filth and trash. But He's promised, He's promised that this kingdom will be established forever. We can accept that promise humbly. We can act like David and live thankfully. I mean, if you didn't get it in his words, think about it again. He is grateful to God for what God is about to do through his family. He is ecstatic about it. And not only do you hear it in his words, but if you read about David, though he was not perfect, his life demonstrates that gratitude. Over and over again. You know, I, I, I'm just struck by a thought just now. And this life of gratitude, this the, the the gratitude that comes out of our mouth, the thankfulness that comes out of our mouth, and the, and the actions that follow it. You know what that is? That's worship. I mean, we, we don't just have to define worship as what happens on Sunday morning when we gather and sing songs. This is worship as we live in gratitude for what He's done. And I think we can wait expectantly. I, I, I'm not sitting. I, I'm not saying that that David thought that that. I, I'm not saying that David was just sitting there thinking, ah. The promise is going to be fulfilled in a generation and everything's going to be great. And we know it's not going to be that way. In fact, David understood it wasn't going to be that way. You've talked about my family for some time. You've been talking about what's going to happen for generations and generations and generations. But as he heard it, you can be sure that he waited expectantly. He longed for it to happen. And not with some wishful thinking kind of hope, not some empty hope that's based on nothing, but a confident expectation, a hope that will not disappoint because it's based on, built on, the promises of a God that keeps His promises. Accept humbly, live thankfully, wait expectantly. That really is what a life, faith and worship look like remembering what's been done and looking forward to what's going to happen that's what the season's about that's what needs to be saved in the midst of our christmas that's what needs to be redeemed it's so easy to lose sight of to set it aside for sunday but it matters tomorrow And it matters on Friday and Saturday and and it matters on January 2nd and on June 4th and on every other day of the year. This matters. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the work that you've been doing all along. I thank you that we can count on your promises with a steadfast, living hope, with a hope that doesn't disappoint, with with an expectation of things to occur. God, I pray, I pray, I, I, I beg of you, burn this into our hearts because of your promise because of your decree, because of your decision to act. We have great reason to celebrate, great things to look forward to. I thank you for it. I pray that you would bring it to our minds daily. That there's not a person, God, I pray that there's not a person in this room that today wouldn't, Be stirred by your Spirit. And and God, if there's one that doesn't belong to you in this moment, I pray that you would redeem them now, that you would convert them, that you would show them the truth that your promise was made and that gives us the hope of a great future. And that in the midst of Christmas, in the midst of this Advent season, that's why we can look forward. That's why we have something to expect. God, I pray. I pray for you to work. I pray, God, that you would move, that you would use us, and move among us. It's all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.